listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. You can turn in your Bibles to Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, as we continue part two here in our series on the Ten Commandments. And if you would like a Bible, if you don't have a Bible today and would like to follow along and, and, um, and do that, just raise your hand. The ushers have Bibles for you that they would love to, to put into your hand here this morning to, to um, look at God's word together with us. Exodus chapter 20, we're starting. Uh, we're going to start today. I'm going to read right from the beginning here from chapter 1 of Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Command number one that was given by God to his people no other gods. It's interesting, the New York Times recently reported, just in the last few weeks, that reproductions of this temple, a 2,000-year-old temple of Baal, will be set up in New York City, in Times Square, as well as in Trafalgar Square in London on April the 19th. Now, these they're going to use some special 3D printer technology in order to put up these temporary temples in these two cities. These 50-foot-high temples will, uh, are being set up as a tribute to a structure that was destroyed by ISIS in Syria just last year. Plans are reportedly in the works for, over, for hundreds of cities around the world to have um, the same kind of reproductions um, set up. In a sense, coming to a city near you, you know, kind of thing, I guess, is going to be happening. Well, Baal worship, just in case you aren't aware of this, originates back to Genesis chapter 10 with the great-grandson of Noah. His name was Nimrod, a great name, um, and his name basically means rebel. And when he rebelled against God and he went his own way and thus started the pagan uh, idolatry and the worship. And this is where Baal is first, uh, where, where he originates as, as one of the gods, one of the main gods in that society. The worship of this pagan deity was known for infiltrating the worship of God's people. All throughout the Old Testament, you would see that God's people would get distracted. They would start worshiping these other altars, these other idols, and it would cause them to drift into idolatry, into sin, and to having the blessing of God cut out of their lives. Baal, this God, was the most powerful of all of these um, gods that, that were worshipped. Here are some common images that are, are, are dated back years and years ago, um, centuries, to um, what this altar or what this God looked like. He was the God of fertility and made both women and men, or both women and crops very fruitful. And so it was a God that, that was greatly worshipped because Children, having children, having uh, more and more people in your country, in your tribe was important as well as food to be able to be fruitful. Priests, the, the priests of, of the, the god Baal would often gash themselves with swords and lances in order to secure a blessing from their god. Their worship often led to prostitution and to public bisexual orgies in the streets. And you, again, you see this in God's word and you see this in history. Costly offerings were given to appease the anger of these gods, including the god Baal. And Baal worship often included sacrificing animals as well as young children. All of these life-size reproductions are simply to preserve the cultural history of the past. Or should we as Christians be concerned about this kind of thing? Ironically, April 19th, the day that these are set to be set up, are also the, is also the day that coincides with certain, a certain occult festival related to the worship of Baal. Ironically, April 19th and the 13 days following are known as, known as blood sacrifice to the beast. Um, celebrations and which will culminate on May the 1st, an occult holy day. 
Various secret societies and occult groups believe that someday this ancient deity and his worship will be, will be resurrected and people will be once again paying homage to this God. Many Christian scholars believe that there is a connection between the ancient gods from the Old Testament periods and to the Antichrist. And so we are to watch, I believe, with open eyes. We should be interested in what is going on with these kind of things, but we must also understand that there is a much even more dangerous, prevalent, and even local idolatry that's taking place in our world as well as here in our city and in our own lives. You kind of think, well, what civilized society? Really, they're going to bring back this kind of worship? People are going to be worshiping like this, this skinny dude, you know, kind of thing that, I mean, he doesn't even have very big muscle, you know, or anything like that. I mean, people are going to be worshiping this kind of a God? I mean, come on. Who's going to worship a God of stone or made out of wood? Why would the worship of Baal ever be resurrected? You think, what, what kind of society would ever, I mean, want to bring back a, a religion, some sort of a faith system that sacrificed infant children? I mean, how barbaric is that? What kind of people would ever allow that sort of thing to happen? Would we allow that to happen? And yet, sadly, since roughly the 1970s in Canada and, the, and in the United States, an estimated 100 million children have been aborted for the sake of the God of comfort and ease and convenience. Maybe we're not quite as civilized as we maybe think we are. You see, folks, we live in a world that today is filled with idolatry. In some countries, people carry their idols with them. They keep them in their purse. They keep them in their pocket. They have them around the neck. They're there to bring them good luck and to bring a blessing upon them and to help them when they're in times of trouble and don't know what else to do. They have their little idol, their little God with them. And you think, how crazy is that? But, hmm, just like in the same way we carry around our cell phones and we need them, we rely on them, and we look to them for blessing, for help, for direction, and without them, we're, we're lost. Hmm. In houses and huts and in various pagan countries and in tribal areas, even to this day, you will see uh, people in their homes in, or in their huts or wherever that, that they, they live, in their living place, they will have a corner of the house, oftentimes in kind of a living room area set up with their altar, and they arrange everything in the room around that altar. And daily, the family is individuals, but together as a family, will gather around that, that altar, around that idol, to be able to spend time in worship and to give it time. And just think of how we arrange everything in our living rooms to face the television screen in our homes. Could that be a form of modern-day idolatry? Paying homage to things such as that. Or in areas in Africa, um, I had an aunt who was a missionary there and lived in some very uh, remote jungle areas. And even to this day, there are some of these tribes that paint their faces and go through all kinds of strange rituals and dances and do all kinds of, of, of strange things around a fire oftentimes and, and, um, and, and performing various kind of sacrifices. And, and oftentimes, even in these, these tribal nations and in, in, in these communities, there's tribal wars that will often lead to bloodshed and, and to just terrible civil wars, wars among the people. And we think, that's so crazy. How barbaric. Why doesn't someone stop that? But, but what do we do for the God of sports? Just like we may what we might do before the big game, painting our faces and doing all kinds of weird dances and chants. And before the game, people gather around and open fire and they, they, they cook meat items in order to consume them. And, and then they get ready for the big celebrations and dances and, and everything that goes with that. And we think they're crazy. I wonder if they were to look at us and say, what a crazy, uncivilized society who would do such a thing. And it often leads to civil war, wars amongst um, parents in stands or against opponents in, 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 um, 
who are watching the games and you hear that of, of the violence that takes place in soccer games in, in, in Europe or even recently I was just reading there was something in the South Okanagan some parents started fighting after a kid's hockey game and they were just taking it so seriously and, and charges are, are stemming because of that but then I even saw this someone recorded with a cell phone a fight in Saskatchewan where there was two opposing teams playing each other and this fight started in the stands and I watched this I mean how brutal I mean just fans are punching each other and fighting and falling on each other while somebody's recording all of this, getting it all down, and the police are using it to be able to press charges and that. And ironically, I had to laugh. You know the name of the town where it happened? It was happened in the town called Unity. <laughs> uh, just what a sense of humor in that one. Unity, Saskatchewan, you see this, this, this tribal war amongst the two different sports teams and their fans taking things so seriously. <coughs> but you see... In all of these things I've mentioned, and one thing we have to realize that everyone worships all the time. We are all worshiping. We are all worshiping something or someone. Atheists, Buddhists, agnostics, Muslims, Christians, we are all worshipers. We are all worshiping something, and, and either it is the real God or it is other gods, it is false gods. And we're pouring ourselves out for someone or something or oftentimes that person that we even worship the most in our lives is ourselves. And I wonder today, who or what are you worshiping? What is your idols? What idols do you have in your life? You see, I do not believe that we can truly love God. And it's not just me who believes this. God says this. We cannot truly love God if we are worshiping other gods. We cannot truly and fully and completely love others in the way that even we would want to in our own hearts if our love for God isn't primary in our lives. Everything flows out of this first command that is given to the people of Israel. And it is a command that is given to us to love God, to have no other gods. This aggressive kind of oppressive pressure that we see in our society that is around us makes it very hard for us to keep this first command because we see it on billboards. We see it wherever we go. We've got to have the latest. We've got to have the best. We've got to, have, we've got to keep kind of up, upscaling everything in our lives, it seems, and, and, and we just got to keep up with everyone else. And, 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 and it's so hard in this society just to try to live a life that isn't consumed with this sort of thing. And folks, we have to understand the stakes are infinite, and there are souls the destiny of our souls, the destiny of our children's souls, their lives are at stake. And this is serious stuff that we, we are talking about today and, and as we look here at the Ten Commandments. How we live this out, you will even see next week, will affect the future generations that follow us. So let's look again at this passage. Let's look at verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Here what we see first of all is God is speaking with great authority. God is speaking with great authority. Look at verse 1. Look at the very first three words. And God spoke, it says. Now, if you were to go through the whole Bible and, and circled every time that it says, and God said, or says, or God spoke, or it says, thus saith the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to, you would discover more than 4,000 times in the word of God that God speaks in this way. God's word, he speaks with great authority. 4,000 times we hear God speaking words to his people. He is speaking words to his creation here on this earth. God's word is powerful. It is authoritative. It is personal. It holds promise of life and blessing. But also it holds judgment and wrath. And we have to look at both. I remember in, in my first year of college, I lived on dorm, lived on the dorm uh, floor. It was Brooks One South was the name of the dorm, and we had a really good floor. I mean, we had a lot of fun. And um, it, it was so much fun, in fact, that our resident assistant, he was the guy that was kind of like the guy to oversee a group of about 20 guys, virtually by the end of that semester had a nervous breakdown. 
It was mayhem. It was chaos. Our dorm had a, had a reputation amongst the school for good times and doing some crazy things. And, and I may or may not have been a part of any of those kind of activities. I may deny it to this day of some of the things that took place. And this poor resident assistant, I mean, he was just wearing down. And, and, and by the time that, that the semester was over at Christmas, he was done. And we were told that things are going to change in the new year and that we were going to have a new resident assistant in place and that things better be different. Well, we came back. We were kind of wondering, who is this guy going to be? And all of a sudden, we see him and he had instant authority. This guy was tall. He was muscular. He didn't have much hair. He was a guy from British Columbia, and he was a former lumberjack. And I'm telling you, that guy, I mean, it wasn't like th th these great big tree trunks for arms, but I mean, just the, j just the strength in this guy, and his voice was booming. And like instantaneously, this guy had authority. He had respect because of his size, because of his voice. And I only one time had to hear him say, Mootser, stop it! And it stopped, you know? And uh, I mean, this guy just carried that kind of authority. But one thing else about this guy is that it was an authority that he had, but he was kind and he was compassionate and loving. So he had this tough exterior and this incredible heart on the inside. And throughout the course of that semester, everything changed on that floor. And we were united, we were together, we made things right with um, the person who we made life very difficult for. And it was an amazing year. This man brought authority. Folks, I want you to know that that man, he loved God very much. He died at a very young age, which is very sad. But he showed us the power, the strength of God, but also the heart of God. And this is what we see in the word of God. We see it as a book of power, of strength. 4,000 times God speaking to his people and God said, God spoke. And so here he is saying th these commandments at the start of the 10 commandments and God spoke. You have to know this came from God. And so let's once again just even just review what we looked at last week as far as in as, as what was taking place, the, the, the setting here in Exodus. Exodus 20. God told Moses to gather the people at the base of Mount Sinai. And there was this thick cloud. There was fire at the top of this mountain. And here is the modern day Mount Sinai. And so here the people are gathered around the base of this mountain. And they are there. And there's this cloud. There is smoke. There's smoke billowing out. There's, there's, there's kind of, they can see there's fire at the top. There are trumpets that are, are blaring. And, and, and the mountain is trembling. The people are trembling. And it's dramatic. It's earth sh shaking. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing what's going on. It's so majestic. It, it is just amazing. And everyone was paying attention to what was going on. And so we have this dramatic scene going on as we have the Israelite people, probably more than a few million people gathered together being a part of this. They're watching what is taking place. And then they hear the word of God that is spoken to them. And today I wonder in our own lives, what kind of place does God's word have in our lives? Is God's word our authority or is it merely a suggestion book? Is it a book we turn to when we're in trouble or is it our guide book for life? Is it God's word to us or is it God's suggestions on how to live? And we need to establish that in our own lives. The Israelites got to hear, they got to see this take place, but they got to hear God speak to them. And he spoke these words to them in power and in great conviction. We see in Psalm 19, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, much, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. For moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. 
And so the Israelites would discover and they would find that in keeping the word of God as he is going to speak these commandments to them, there would be great blessing, there would be great reward. Same thing in our lives as we take God's word and we see it as the authority in our lives and not just a suggestion and we see his word as our authority and we desire to live his word, not perfectly but progressively and in our lives that we're progressing in this, that we see that by this we are warned but we also see See that there is great reward that comes to the life of the person who follows the word of God. Won't guarantee an easy life, but one that will know the blessing and the power and the strength of God. And so we see here this first thing. We see God speaking with great authority. And as you look then into into verse 2, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so secondly, we see God's word reminds us of his redeeming love. God is speaking with great authority from the mountain to his people. And now he's reminding them of his redeeming love here in verse 2. Love is rolling down the mountain to them. God is so powerful, so mighty, so majestic, so holy. And we are talking about that this week. And yet this was love that was was flowing down to the mountain. And he is saying very personal words to them. He says, I am the Lord your God. This is personal. He's saying, I am yours. He's not just saying, I am theirs out there. He is speaking personally to each one of them. These six words are incredibly personal. I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of slavery. You didn't do this yourself. Remember, I was the one. I was the one that brought the plagues that dealt with Pharaoh. I was the one that brought you through the Red Sea on dry ground. I fed you with manna and quail. I'll meet your needs. I will take care of you. You've seen it. Water came miraculously from the rock. I am is an announcement of the closest intimacy and a, of a personal and a gracious God with his people. And so he's speaking very personal words to them saying, I am the Lord your God. And this is what's rolling down on the mountain to them. A God that we can have a relationship with. A God that is full of grace to his people. You see, this law, as we talked about last week and want you to remember, this law was a result of of his grace. Moses in Deuteronomy 7, you might want to write down this reference, Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, says that, and and this is Moses speaking this, and and, and we see this just before they're getting ready to go into the promised land. It says, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. Folks, this is unmerited love, unmerited grace. Folks, you gotta know, you gotta understand that this is a picture here of the redeeming work that God has done for his people. They didn't deserve it. They weren't this mighty nation and God's like, I'm gonna team up with you and you're gonna be my people. No, they were weak. They were the fewest. And yet God had made a promise to them years back to, to their forefather, Abraham, and he says, I will bless you, I will be with you, and God keeps his word. And God's word tells us that he does desire that no one should perish, but all, all to come to repentance. His grace is available for all who call upon it. He looks upon us, and now we get a picture in the New Testament of what Christ has done. He has chosen you to be here today, to hear this word and to respond to him as Savior and Lord if you've never done that. If you have received Christ as your Savior, he's calling you today to to repent of idols and to come back to him and to worship him as the only true God. And God hasn't chosen you because you're amazing. God hasn't chosen you because it's like, wow, look at that gorgeous piece of my creation. I need them on my team. they're going to be my number one draft pick. No, I mean, that's not, he loves us. He loves everyone and, and anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
God loves you. He pursues you and I. He loves us. He loves you. He gave his son to die on the cross for our sins. He he brought us out of the slave market of sin. He paid the price for our ransom. Psalm 103 verse 4 says, Who redeems our lives from the pit and crowns us with love and compassion. There we are in the pit of sin. We're in the pit of hell of life. And he's redeemed us. And he doesn't just redeem us just to, to kind of just, he, he crowns us with his righteousness. He crowns us as a treasure. As we were singing a little earlier, precious daughters, treasured sons. That's who we are in Christ. It's not because we first loved God that he decided, okay, now I'm going to love you. No, 1 John 4.10 says that, that he loved us first. That he pursues us first. And every other religion in the world will teach you that if you love God enough, if you do enough good stuff, then he'll love you back and you will be blessed. God turns that on its head and says, I loved you first. I loved you first. I have purchased a way. I have redeemed you. I have called you. I have saved you. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so our response to his redeeming love is obedience. We're, we don't obey in order to be saved. We obey because he has saved us. Our response, our, our keeping of the word of God and Jesus says, if you love me in John 14, he says, if you truly love me, you're going to keep my commands. You're going to follow my word. It's not because you have to, it's because you want to. We're not in pursuit of salvation and think that if I just run the treadmill of, of works hard enough and fast enough, I'll eventually get there. No, you're not going to. It's not going to do it. You can't earn your way to God. But our lives are to be a response to his extravagant love for us. So when an instruction or a command comes from the word of God, the reason why we do it is because of what God has already done for us in Christ. And so we see these 10 commandments aren't here, do this, do this, and then you'll be blessed. It's look at what I've done. Look at who I am. Look at what I've saved you from. And the way to enjoy life and to have an exclusive relationship with God is to follow these commands. They're for your good. They're for your blessing. We see this in the New Testament over and over and over again. Whenever you see an instruction that is given, you see the reason why it's given. It's not just do this, do this, do this. It's always a response. As Keith has been teaching us at the, at the men's studies, we've been going through Titus on Friday mornings together. And the instructions for young men and for older men and for young women and for older women that you see there in the book, very specific instructions on how we are to live. And the whole motivation and the reason why we are to, to, to do this is based on the gospel. It's already based on what Christ has done for us. So we're compelled to obey to follow him. And so God's word here, when he's saying no other gods, it's reminding him, I've redeemed you. I've called you. And so God is saying here in Exodus 20, he says, I've already brought you out of political slavery from Pharaoh. Now I want to deliver you, deliver you from spiritual slavery. The real slavery that's going to really entangle you and that's idolatry. And so the third thing we see here is God's word promises an exclusive relationship. Verse 2 starts out with those six words I mentioned just a little before. I am the Lord your God. And then we have this command, you shall have no other gods before me. The word you in this command here, and you may want to circle that word there. And every time that it is mentioned here in the Ten Commandments, when this instruction is given for all Ten Commands, and here in the first command it says, you shall have no other gods before me. The word you that we see here is, is actually very, very personal. It is in the second person singular, not in the second person plural. And so God here is speaking directly to each person, to the millions that have gathered there, to those that are gathering here today. He is saying, you are to have no other gods. 
You, Meldon Lutzer, are to have no other gods. You, Dwayne Hay, are to have no other gods. He's speaking a very personal word here to the people. But you see, the problem is we all have a deity that we worship. We're all worshipers of something. John Calvin, he wrote these words. He says, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Our, Our hearts are just producing idol after idol. One pastor wrote, love this statement, idols can be good things that become God, God things so, that, so then it becomes a bad thing. An idol can be good things that become a God thing and that's a little g God and so it becomes a bad thing. An idol is anything you love more than God. Whatever it is that you love more than God, it's an idol in your life and you're an idolater. And you know what? There's good news and bad news. We're all idolaters. We're all in this together. It's just a matter of identifying what is your idol. What is the idol that you will keep going back to time and time again? Is it the quest to have just a great life? To be the best in your field? Is it the idol to be rich? To have a great reputation where just everyone loves you and and, and no one has anything bad to say about you? Is it the quest to have a successful church or a great body or a happy family or a great marriage or the approval of your parents or the approval of your kids? You want to be that cool mom or that awesome dad and so maybe we, we don't discipline like we know we should because we want to stay in our kids' good books? Doctrinal, biblical accuracy can actually become an idol. And you're saying, Melden, you're listing off a lot of good things. Yes, idols can be good things, but they become a God thing in our lives. It's what we go for. It's what we long for. It's what we're dreaming about. It's, it's what our future and everything hinges upon. And again, those are good things, that many of them that I mentioned here. But when they are in top spot and God's not there, then it becomes a little G God in our life, and that is what we worship. And God says, no other gods. No other gods. An idol is something that we bow down to a lot. Maybe it's fear. Fear of being alone. Fear of being poor. Fear of being a failure. Getting sick. Fear that your kids may not turn out right. Fear, again, of reputation, what others think of us. An idol can be whatever we turn to when things go badly, when we get stressed, just to kind of cope a little bit better. Maybe it's, it's social media. Just like, oh, I'm just going to go and just go, just, just go, and, 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 and go through my Facebook news feed for the next 10 minutes, which leads to 30 minutes, which leads to 45 minutes, which leads to many, many multiple times throughout the day. Or maybe it's sports or food. Food has become, food and sports, I mean, if somebody was to, to, to fly in into our, our universe from, last night, any of you guys see the, uh, the uh, space station that was floating around Kelowna? It's been flying around the last few nights, pretty cool. Uh, 8.28 last night, and then again at 10 o'clock, I didn't see the 10 o'clock show. But I mean, if someone was on that space station, had never been here on planet Earth, and, and uh, they, they get here on Earth, they would think, okay, the two main gods, food and sports. Just think of how many channels and programs are devoted to those two things alone. You know, and, and we worship food. I mean, we, we live for food, or, or maybe it, it, it's food to fill, your, fill your, your tummy, or maybe it's food to tighten your tummy. You know, and, and we just, just live for these kind of things. Um, another thing that we can oftentimes turn to, to cope, to get through, is alcohol or drugs, prescription. Or non-prescription, pornography provides that temporary escape, which is really an entrapment. Shopping, you know, a little retail. If I just go shopping, I'll get feeling better. What do we call it? You know, like retail therapy. We have our comfort foods. Maybe it's gambling, online gambling, or, you know, no one even knows about it. But it's but it just that little hope that maybe things, the odds will go our way. Leisure. And sleep can easily become things that we turn to just to look at as an escape. An idol is whatever 
you dream about most. What we will rearrange our lives for. And when we purposely plan our schedules, events and gatherings and commitments and different things like that, that take us away from the important things or from the God things, from, from even gathering together with other believers like, on a ch- like church on a Sunday or midweek and we are purposely planning our lives and, and, and we're scheduling things to, oh, it's not that big of a deal for me to miss Church, it's not a big, big deal for me not to participate. I'm busy. I've got a lot of things. What are those things? Are they God things? Are, where, where is God in the priority? I'm a pretty solid church guy. I believe strongly in it, not because it's my job, but because I see it in God's word, how Jesus gave himself for the church. He calls it his bride. He calls it a relationship. And he wants us not to be free agents and to be somewhat connected, disconnected, but be connected to the body of Christ. Not just to attend, but to, to, to grow together, to learn together, to be challenged together, to work out your sanctification together. And that's what happens in the body of Christ. You can get together with a group of people that you all like, that you get along, along well with, but part of the sanctification of the body of Christ is being together with people who aren't quite the same as you, that are quite different, that are going to, to, to at times drive you crazy. <laughs> that would be me. I could be that person that could drive anyone crazy. I'm sure any of you would know it. I want you to help. I want to help you on your own personal sanctification. That is the beauty of the body of Christ. And God's word tells us again is it our authority Hebrews 10 verse 25 he says don't don't forsake the gathering together of the saints when our lives are too busy to be involved and to be committed to his bride to the church we need to examine our lives we need to folks because because there's a big deal that that the word of God puts on the body of Christ on the bride of Christ and so we need to examine what are we willing to sacrifice ourselves for and yes family and work and all of these things are important but if we are to take an honest evaluation of our lives have we placed these things higher than where God would place them when we don't love God first and the things that God loves it becomes the reason why it becomes very quickly to break all the other commandments as well You see, the first commandment is so important. It is the key to the rest because it opens up the floodgates of God's grace and God's mercy. He says, have no other gods. No other gods, no rivals. Tim Keller wrote this. He he picks up on this and he says, our hearts are idol-making factories that make good gifts from God ultimate in our lives, thereby replacing God in our affections. He writes, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. When we don't love God first, it becomes the reason why we break and can easily start breaking all of the other commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, he says. And remember, this is Directed to Melden Lutzer. Melden Lutzer, you shall have no other gods before me. This is an exclusive, personal, intimate relationship. But you know what? The beautiful thing here of this statement is the reverse of this. Is that if we have no other gods, look at the promise that God is giving. This is what's rolling down the mountain. He says, have no other gods because then you will have me. I will be your God. I will lead you. I will provide for you. What I did to Pharaoh, how I provided food, I I didn't give you all your greeds, but I I helped with your needs, and well, I gave you some of your greeds. When you whined, I gave you quail. I love it when he gave him quail. He's like, I'll give you quail. You wanted meat, you bunch of wine. I don't think he was quite like that. That's the way I'm interpreting it. But he gave it to the point it's running out their nostrils. It was like, here, I'll give you some meat. Keep eating. You know, it's going to go bad. Keep eating, kids. You know, you know I mean, just, I, I mean, he gives us, he, he cares for us. And, and he's making this, so you will have me. Just, just don't settle for those other idols. For, let all those other good things stay lower on the scale. Have it all flow out from your love for God. 
You see, this promises an exclusive relationship. We shall have God when we have no other idols in our lives. Years ago in Saskatoon, Charlotte and I were, I'd been watching her for some time and, and I finally got the nerve to ask her out on a date and, and uh, which she paid for. That was all part of the deal. Long story, I won't go into it. And, and uh, we'd started spending time together, we went out a few times, lots of conversations on the phone. And, and I remember sitting in the church parking lot in that white Honda Accord two-door coupe cool car. And, uh, and there was Charlotte. And, uh, and all of a sudden, it was time to talk about our relationship. And I turned to her and I said, Miss Matiko, um, I'm just wondering, you know, we've been spending a lot of time together and, you know, Miss Matiko, people are starting to talk and wonder and, and I'm also kind of wondering too, Miss Matiko, would it be all right if, if it came to that point in our relationship where I could call you by your first name? And she looked at me and she said, I wouldn't mind if you called me by your last name. You know, it, okay. Some of you will catch that in the parking lot, I'm sure, you know, and, uh, and I'm like, yes, well, it maybe didn't quite go down like that, but we did have this conversation about our relationship and what that status would be. We didn't have Facebook back then to hurry up afterwards and put, you know, our status, you know, that we're, we're, we're dating or something like that or in a relationship with, you know, Charlotte Matico, you know, um, nothing like that, but, but we clarified that relationship and, and just wanted to make sure that we were on the same page, that, that we were serious about, you know what, just pursuing one another in a formalized dating relationship, you know, didn't bring out a con contract or anything like that, but, you know, we did discuss that, and, and not a contract, but this relationship, and, and, um, and at the end of it, how do you think it would have gone over if I would have turned to Charlotte and said, you know, like, okay, I, I want to go out with you, I want to date you, I want to see if the Lord's bringing this possibly to, for us to get married, you know, and, and that, and then just say, but just, if it's okay with you, I'm just going to have a few other girlfriends on, these, on the side, you know, like, I've got a lot of love to give, you know, and, and you know, like, i just got to keep my options open. So if you're okay with it, like, you and I will be dating, but, you know, like, a few other girls, you know, I, 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 what would have she have done? Probably slapped me on the face, and then she would have gotten out of that white Honda Accord for good and saying, I'm not going out with that guy. I get it. I want exclusivity here. I've performed a lot of marriage ceremonies and never yet have I had a couple stand there together pledging their lives to one another and having the boyfriend or a girlfriend on the side and just say, you know what, just in case things don't work out, I just want to keep my options open or I just want to have someone here with. No, it's exclusive. It's exclusive. And this is the kind of relationship that, that is offered to us from God. He says, you shall have me. And when we say no other idols, he says, you and I, and we are saying, I want you. And we have this relationship together. And that is where we experience his power and his blessing in our lives. Remember in Deuteronomy, that it may go well with you. When he is first in our lives, it will go well with you. It may not go easy. It may not always be blessing and just living in the Shekinah glory of God every day of your life. But you will know his power, his peace, and his presence. When we know that I am his and he is mine. But our hearts are idol-making factories. And he says, no other gods. So what do we do? First of all, we have to examine our lives. Not the lives of others. This is the point in the message where we stop looking around or we stop thinking, boy, I sure hope so and so. Sure wish this person was here today. I've got to get them to listen online to this one. Mm-mm. We need to look at our own lives and we have to ask ourselves the question, do I have an exclusive love for God? First and foremost, have you received Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Do you know him personally? Have you invited Christ to come into your life? That's the, that's the, that's the way the relationship starts with this exclusivity. But then for the believer in Christ here today, is he first? Is God first? What are the idols in my life? And we pray and we say, God, help me to examine and, and to identify those, those idols. Help me to see these things I've put ahead of you. 
Help me to root them out and have an exclusive love for you, God. Repent. Tell him you're sorry. And ask him to forgive you, and he will. And ask him to help you in power and strength to live in victory today. And then tomorrow, do it again. It's daily examining our affections, our idols, because we're idol-producing people. I even think of a number of years ago when, when I was out of, out of ministry and I was working a, a sales job. And, and in this sales job, there was the promise that was out there um, and, and the possibility that, that I would become very rich doing this. And it was going to be slow at the beginning. But, and, and I was even, you know, just, just thinking, okay, well, well this, is, this will be good. And, and, and right away I started thinking, and you know what? And then if I, if I got a lot of money from this, and, and then I could do ministry, and I could maybe, if God called us to plant a church, and I could do it for free, you know, maybe even finance a lot of it because, you know, this whole business and this sales job, and I mean, who wouldn't want to buy this product from me? Well, it turned out not a lot of people did. But, um, you know, and, and it, but more than that, I was already dreaming of the truck upgrade I could do and the trailer upgrade and, you know, then maybe the house we'd kind of downsize but upscale size, you know, or something, you know, and, and you start thinking of all of this and, and how it can take a good thing and, it rooted out to me the materialistic nature that I have, prone towards this. I see things and, and, and I take them in and, and I want them. And, and because if I don't root them out, they become bigger and bigger and they become an obsession and the things you're dreaming about when you're falling asleep at night, when you get up in the morning throughout the day, you start thinking about this and what this could look like. And, and my worship of God goes down, down, down. Daily rooting out those idols. Having people in our lives that will speak into our lives. And, and you know what? There are people in our lives, spouse, family members, friends, who could probably help you root out some of those idols if you were to ask. Daily examining our affection, spending time in worship, remembering, thinking on God's word. Seeing the immensity of the love of God that he showered for us on the cross on a daily basis, being mesmerized and blown away by his love at the cross. That we would be in awe of what he has done. Meditating on scriptures. Write down Psalm 63. Psalm 18. Those are great verses, uh, passages to meditate on, on the goodness and the power and the grace of our God. Through the day when you see his creation, worship him. Because you know what we'll do? As we see the beauty around, and this is, isn't this a beautiful time of year? And you see the blossoms, you see the grass so green, you see all of this happening. You know what we tend to do? We go, oh, isn't this beautiful? And somewhere in our heart of hearts, you may not verbalize it, but I'll verbalize what oftentimes many of you might be thinking is, boy, it was a good decision to move here. Boy, that was pretty good of us. We're worshiping the creation and not the creator. Instead, we've realized, oh God, you've made this so beautiful. Thank you for your beautiful creation. And verbalize it to other people. Acknowledge that it's God who made all of this. This is the way that we, we extol him as, as the great and the mighty creator, not man. When, when you see the space station flying around in the sky, it's not, wow. Those American, Russians, Chinese, whoever invented that, oh, the, you know, that's just amazing. Just to, no, God did that. It's all God that gave the ability and the minds for people and the solar system and the universe for them to examine. It's all him. Don't let the praise fall on you. When people, when, you're, when, when the report is done, when you get the job, when all of this, don't take it upon yourself. Be thankful, but give it, give, thank God for it. Be a person who reflects the glory back to God, reflects the thanksgiving back to God. Daily praying, God, I give you myself, I give you my all. These idols we serve will eventually They'll let us down. Oh, there'll be pleasure for a season. There'll be joy for a while. Won't be happiness. It won't be true joy. 
The fun will run out. The good times will become sad times. And then there's God who will always be there who provides. Meditate, fill your minds, your thoughts on the Lord. Declare daily your love for the Lord. Declare it verbally. There's something about even saying it verbally, audibly to him. God, give us the same. God gives us the same offer that he gave to the Israelites. You shall have me. Those things that run our lives, they will eventually ruin our lives. But God when he reigns in, his, in our lives, gives us his righteousness and his glory. Even this morning, it's interesting how down in, uh, as, as I was driving to church this morning, there was just all of a sudden as I was coming down to the valley, like literally there was just kind of a wave of fear and discouragement and, and different things that were hitting me and and here had the satellite radio on, and there was this, this song that was, was playing at the time. And here are the, the literal words that I heard that, and I had to pull over, and I just had to write them down, and I just had to spend time just worshiping the Lord. Down in the, vo- down in the valley, when waters rise, I'm still believing hope is alive. All through the struggle and the darkest of day, I will remember the empty grave. Turn what we're going through back into victory by remembering what he's already done, what he's already conquered. Hallelujah, death is gone. All hell is overcome. Jesus, you're alive. By getting our eyes, our worship back on him, I put that GMC back into drive and just continued on in victory. Why? Because the idols of fear, the idols that are around Start creeping in, but as we worship, as we worship the King of Kings, as we remember the grave is empty, we remember what Christ has done, hope is alive. Let's pray together. Just even encourage you right now to spend a few moments examining your own life. What are the idols? What are the traps? towards idolatry that are your struggle. And, and everyone's struggle in this room will be totally different. They say in India there's 330 million gods or idols that they worship. I'd say in North America there's probably that many here too in all of the different things. Spend some time examining, repenting, and returning Returning to the one true God. Repent in your heart of these things and determine today to be a worshiper of God first. Seeking first his kingdom in all things. And then all these things will be added. Repent. Return. And then we're going to rejoice. Rejoice.